Hello, everyone. My name is Brooklyn Myers, and I am an Elixir newbie. My goal is to help people adopt Elixir and grow as developers while doing the same myself. I do that by documenting and sharing my own experience in the Elixir industry. It's been an incredible journey so far, and I look forward to taking the next step with you. So let's jump in to the Elixir Newbie Podcast. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Juanes Frensen, who is a lecturer and researcher at UCLL, which is a university in Belgium. He gave me my first opportunity to speak at a university uh, and has been a huge help inspiring material for Dockyard Academy. So, Juanes, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So, we're going to have all sorts of interesting technical conversations, of course. But first, I want to know... Who is your favorite wizard? <laughs> um, I'd say Merlin. Um, and not because of the, the stereotypical um, stories, but mostly because of the, uh, do you know the drama? Um, I don't think it was on, yeah, maybe it was on Netflix. Um, and I really liked him because he found a unique solution to sometimes uh, yeah, common day problems. I love it. Was that the, the, there used to be a Merlin series about Merlin when he was like young and King Arthur. Is that the, yeah. Yes. yes yeah. I love that series. I can't remember <laughs> what it was on. I think it was just called Merlin. If anyone wants to watch it. Um, yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, I don't know if this counts as a wizard, but I think one of my favorite wizards is Kvothe. Um, who's from this book called The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Um, he's this like intensely intelligent. Um, uh, yeah, like people should read that book, by the way. Patrick Rothfuss, The Name of the Wind. That's one of my all-time favorites. There's also a second book um, called A Wise Man's Fear. Um, that, yeah, it, incredible books. Um, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Um, what we're here to talk about is Elixir and programming and, and teaching. And so uh, I want to understand how did you get started in programming and how did that lead to becoming um, a researcher and a lecturer? Um, well, I have to admit that the path uh, to a Elixir researcher uh, wasn't a normal one. I certainly didn't expect expect it in the beginning. So um, in the beginning, I was just a typical student, um, like all the students that I'm teaching right now, uh, learning some object-oriented languages, uh, Java, Python. In that time, there was also some, some Perl uh, added to it. Didn't like that, but yeah, it was there. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, it was just no functional programming at all. So that was the only world I knew. Um, after a while, I got, yeah, I think maybe frustrated or a little bit irritated uh, with Java. Um, but I couldn't really put my finger on it. Why? And that became quite clear to me um, with the project when I was in my second year. Um, I was in a in a student group, and it gave me the opportunity to um, work together with some uh, master thesis students. And their goal was uh, to solve a certain business case, but in order to make it um, yeah, concrete, they uh, needed some kind of software product. 
and that was a 3D uh, bin packaging system with uh, homogeneous objects. So that was well the easier uh, variant. Uh, if there were all yeah dynamic sized objects, that would have been a bit difficult. And I made that completely in Java with Spring Boot. Um, and um, in the beginning, it was yeah definitely a good learning experience. But at the end, uh, those irritations, uh, those annoying fe feelings became stronger and stronger. And after a while, I got to know why. So uh, of course, I was the second year student. Uh, my code wasn't perfect. I'm not saying it's all Java, it's fault. Of course, I, I was still a student. It was mostly my fault. Um, but the language didn't really push me in a good direction. Um, it was, how should I call it, kind of like a free-for-all, uh, figure out your way. And it allowed to do a lot of things, even if that wasn't the best practice, uh, resulting in non-deterministic output. So uh, they gave in the sizes of the object that they wanted stapled in a certain box. Um, and while the result was always correct, so many boxes of type A or B, um, the way that they stacked them in a box was also quite important and that wasn't uh, deterministic at all. So every time you ran it, it was a different kind of version. So that was strange because there was no concurrency, nothing else. Uh, I still really don't know what went wrong. Um, but also the no concurrency was a big problem. As soon as the object became smaller, you had to wait quite long for an answer. Um, and then in the third year, um, there was this uh, course, it, it's a course where you can run along with a senior researcher. Um, and he gave me the chance to learn Elixir functional programming. And then of course, uh, the, be the beginning of the ODP framework. So, um, it was just a small course. It was mostly explorative. Um, and there I got to know Elixir. I was so in love with it. Uh, in the beginning, I was, of course, really confused with the functional uh, approach. But after a while, I saw the benefits. Uh, and then I used it for my bachelor thesis. Um, and that ended up in a uh, component-driven simulation software for hydraulic circuits. Once again, not the best code. It was, I was a definitely an Elixir newbie. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was really happy with the result. It worked. It was concurrent. Um, yeah, it, it it was a good bachelor thesis in my opinion, at least. So I got hooked on it. Never stopped with it, and here I am, still using it. Nice. It's. It's interesting to think about um, the importance of constraints, because like you were talking about, when you're using a language that doesn't encourage you along a particular path, it kind of lets you go free reign. Um, that can be a lot of fun and like really cool. You know, like I, I like writing JavaScript. Uh, I often describe it as um, duct tape programming. Right. I can <laughs> I can I can beat patch things together however I want. Um, but ultimately. If you are building something, creating something, this this even applies to different fields, you want to have constraints. Often you can be more creative uh, the more constraints that you impose on yourself. And functional programming is one of those things where there are more constraints and more idiomatic ways of writing it and 
there's more best practices. I would say that functional programming to me feels like it's consolidated on its best practices more than object oriented. Maybe that's just because there's a smaller um, set of it, or maybe that's because of the nature of FP. But regardless, it seems to be consolidated on particular patterns. Um, whereas like you said, with object, you can kind of write yourself into um, a corner. <laughs> and, yeah, and I completely agree. You can do that no matter what. Nothing's a silver bullet, but having those constraints, um, making things testable, for example, um, and making things much more about the pure input and output of things um, can lead to writing a lot cleaner, uh, more reliable code, more predictable. Yeah, definitely. And also something I noticed was um, all the all the patterns and all the, I call it almost administration, uh, like the abstract, this abstract, uh, that, and it's most of the cases no longer necessary, in my opinion, with functional programming. Uh, it feels a lot more natural, more smoother. Um, that was also a big plus for me. It's it's um, it is interesting because object oriented, the way that it's often sold is like oh it models the way that the world works right like oh you can create a cat class and cat has a bunch of functions and but because it groups data and behavior together so tightly. I find that it often doesn't actually describe the way that the natural world works because now you have these, like you have the concept of inheritance. You're like, Oh, well we have an animal and a cat inherits everything that an animal does. Right. And it's like, well, but there's, there's a bunch of commonalities between all these things that aren't really shared. And then you have to debate like, Oh, like what, what is unique to the cat and what is unique to the animal? And is there an even further inheritance tree? And, you know, things get really complicated really quick and none of us can really agree on what that should look like. And then you have a bunch of patterns to kind of address that and make that make sense. But with functional, the key difference between functional program and object oriented, at least in my mental model, which I'd be really curious to hear what you think about is object-oriented couples data and behavior, functional decouples data and behavior. So we have some data, like a cat that has a bunch of information and properties associated with it, and then we have behavior. And the behavior can be totally separate from the data that it's being given. And this is, you know, um, think of like protocols, for example. You can be like, oh, we have a speak protocol, and a cat can implement that, but so can a dog and so can a this. And, you know, we have uh, maybe the concept of running is a, is a good one I like to stick to where there's tons of different ways to run. You know, we run on two legs, a horse gallops, um, cats prowl, whatever. And the specific ways that all of our different, you know, pieces of information are, are specific animals in this case, um, run is going to be different, but we can all agree that all of them run. Like our language doesn't change in the functional paradigm, I find, at least more so. Yeah, um, I think another aspect that really intrigues me um, is also, um, it's also something that uh, students don't completely understand and it's also kind of hard to explain. Um, but if you have an object in Java or C-sharp or whatever, um, you would have to translate it to Elixir 
they often have two ways to do it because objects often are nothing more than a bunch of data. So you can just have a struct with a field built in and you're done with it. But often they also use an object to um, do an asynchronous uh, task or some kind of execution. And in that use case, it should be a process in Elixir. And then they ask me, sir, um, we've got this object. How do we do it in Elixir? And one time I say, yeah, I do it as a struct. And the other time, yeah, I would make a process out of it. But sir, how do we know the difference when to do what? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Is it just data or should it do something? Uh, do you want to be able to communicate with it? Yeah, but that's possible with every object. You've got this setter method and this method and that method. And that um, kind of line, I suppose, uh, is the best way to put it. When is it a data structure and when is it a process? It's really hard for, for them to grasp, at least. Interesting. I haven't thought about this properly before, so I'm coming in naive. But my initial thought is that you can still separate those concepts. Like, you can still have a struct that represents your data and the way that it's going to change and the functions that you might um, call on some version of that struct that'll update it or change it or, or whatever it's going to do. Not, not literally change it, you know what I mean? Return a new um, version of it that is now going to be um, the, the current version of it. And then you can use that struct within a process and anything that is the like asynchronous part of it or the, the you know, in-memory state part of it, that can all be handled by the process. I would think that's, that's, that's how my brain would think about it is you can still have both of those concepts, start with a struct, start with synchronous. And then once it needs the functionality of a process, well, there's another level that you're adding on to that. So the struct can remain the same and you're just like adding in, okay, now we have a process that's going to work with that struct. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, only for the students, it's often that uh, when they make a class, it can be represented by an object. And the best way to do that in Elixir or the easiest way is uh, to make a process out of it. Mm. Um, and in some use cases, I find it really hard to explain why. For example, um, I'm working in my free time a little bit on a uh, multiplayer uh, server and in an area, area you can have monsters uh, those monsters i would just model them in the area process as just structs but the players on the other hand each player has a separate process because there's also a tcp connection udp connection and you have to do a physics calculation and you want to do those uh, asynchronously but sir both are objects in java why, why are you taking two complete different approaches. Uh, yeah, because you definitely want asynchronous computing there. Um, yeah, the, sometimes the, the students ask questions that really put me on the spot. Um, mm -hmm. and That's I, what I loved the most about getting to do that guest lecture, by the way, <laughs> was the questions you get. You're just like, oh man, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, why? I think there are a lot of things that we as Elixir developers take as granted. 
Um, definitely, if you do it for a few years, uh, of course, it's, that's the same with everything. Um, but if you have to explain it to new or yeah, new students or beginners, that makes you think about it as well. That's also a really nice experience. Yeah, I completely agree. I've I've really enjoyed the experiences so far getting to teach. It reinforces your learning to a huge degree. Like all teachers are still learning, obviously. And so it makes you think even deeper about subjects that you kind of hand waved away or thought, oh, I, you know, I understand this. It makes sense. Um, I'd love to hear about what your early experiences as a teacher were like, like how is it just you you got into research and you know teaching is a part of that i know that you're very passionate about what you teach um and so yeah i'd, I'd love to hear about that um well um generally at least with us they recommend um doesn't matter if you're a teacher or a researcher but they always advise to combine both uh, because of course, in the beginning, when you teach something, it's uh, all new and you have to study even for the simple things you, you want to know them by hand. Um, but after a while, it's it becomes a pattern. There's not much new. And if you then, well, force maybe is the wrong word, but advise the employee to also do research, then they have to improve themselves all the time. Um, and with research, it's actually the other way around. Instead of looking ahead all the time, sometimes those people have to stay back and explain it to the new students in order to see, do I completely grasp what I, I have studied and what I'm trying to apply in research? Mm, um, that's an interesting dichotomy, an interesting contrast. Because I've often, I've thought about that system and I know that lots of people... Um, lots of people probably love it. And I know that some people don't, um, you know, feel like, Oh, all I want to do is teach. I don't want to do research or, Oh, all I want to do is research. I don't want to teach. Um, that's an eloquent way of explaining it though, that I hadn't thought about before that they actually mutually support each other, that being a teacher, what happens is you get to really know some core material. You know, you will cover it over and over again. You'll hear every question related to it. And you'll think about like the deepest parts of that, um, that subject. But as a researcher, like you're saying, you're doing the exact opposite. You are like pushing the edge of your knowledge as far as possible. And you're exploring unknowns and things that you don't know at all about. So it's the difference between like broad and deep in a sense, and, and more like fundamental versus, um, fringe. Though I have to admit that um, sometimes it's complicated to combine those two. Um, not only on the organizational level, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> um, but of course, if you have more interest in teaching, then you'll spend more time on that. And the time balance is, at least for me, it's a bit of a challenge. Um, but I didn't mm. answer on your initial question. I think you asked me uh, what my experiences were when I started teaching. Yeah, what was early <laughs> early teacher Wattis, uh Professor um, Franson? Um, I was nervous. I can't say it any other way. <laughs> it was now that I think 
back to it. Um, yeah, I was shaking uh, with my knees, with my voice a little bit. I was a yeah, typical ITR that was in the basement of his uh, student club and just programming there the whole day long. Even going to classes was a bit... Yeah, too much people, um, too much chitter, can't focus there. So, yeah. Um, and then you're going to stand in front of a class. So it was, yeah, nerve-wracking. Um, but how should I say it? Um, I wanted to dress myself up nicely and be the teacher that the students deserve. Um, but I quickly noticed that I wasn't completely myself anymore and that actually only added to the nervousness and the stress uh, so it was a learning process for the students as well as me um, and after a while I was like okay I'm just going to be a little bit more casual working clothes that I wear for yeah research uh, I'm, yeah, I'm just gonna not make a huge context uh, switch and as soon as I started becoming more comfortable um, as my position as a teacher, the students also noticed that the lessons became better. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of the early me teaching in front of the classes. I think public speaking is most people's worst nightmare. Uh, I know that I was certainly intimidated. I'd never done something like that before speaking uh to be fair it was a zoom call so maybe that minimizes the impact to some degree um but i hadn't even been to university before that was literally the first time i'd been in that environment um so thank you for that opportunity by the way and thank you for for taking a risk uh because it was <laughs> i had to i had to prepare quite a lot to make sure that that uh, went well i still don't know how um you lecture with the frequency that uh, that you do although i guess i'm gonna have to learn pretty quick in the next few months here <laughs> well uh, feel free to always come by again for another guest lecture if you want to uh, have some exercise anytime yeah anytime <laughs> it was uh it was it was a great experience I'd, I'd love to know um because you know i'm earlier in my teaching career um than yourself and you've kind of gone through some of the initial hurdles. Um, you talked about your comfort level changing and you talked about um, that improving your kind of material. I'm curious, what lessons did you learn along the way? Like what got better, you know, your ability to like explain things or like what, what changes did you notice um, beyond comfort level as you started to grow as a teacher? Like, yeah. Um, Surprisingly, in the beginning, uh, I was really, how should I say it? I wanted to explain everything with a guide. I wanted to explain it with a nice PowerPoint. There were a lot of extra hours, uh, definitely unpaid. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's just, that comes with the job. And if you want to do it good, it's, it's only normal. Um, but I soon learned that the prettiness of a PowerPoint, of course, it helps when you go to a conference, but for your class with a limited amount of time, what I learned wasn't the prettiness of the PowerPoint. Of course, a PowerPoint has to be clear and everything has to be explained well. Uh, but if I look at the exams, 
I noticed a huge change as soon as I uh, started to explain real-life situations, use cases, um, what was going wrong. And specifically to that chapter of the theory, I then gave a real-life situation how I solved it, often with a demonstration, because I'm the kind of guy that doesn't want to make some stories, no. I want to illustrate it. And then I noticed on the exams that the students, they didn't know the definition. They don't study the, the dry definition, but they just gave the use case. And based on that use case, they said, so we can conclude that. And they basically ended upon the definition in their own words. Um, so that was, I think, the biggest change that I still give the PowerPoint um, or yeah, the PDF, um, but I try to explain it in my own words with real life uh, scenarios. Um, the only problem that's also learning was that um, if you're then a little bit confusing or you go too fast or it's too complicated, then the students give a good example to the wrong question or a bad argument uh, to a good example. So the students, it has to be really clear for them. So this example is good for this specific part of the theory. And in the beginning, I made, well, maybe I still do uh, make some mistakes there. But I definitely noticed a change in the students that were passing on the exam. It's interesting that when I think about um, lecture specifically as like a teaching tool, because um, lecture, I think, has gotten a, a bad rap, at least, um, until that's the case in North America. I don't know if that's quite as widespread. Um, lecture is often, I like in my personal opinion, um, not always best as a content delivery method, like it purely here, absorb this information, right? And that makes intuitive sense because like, well, what's more effective, me reading some information about the subject or someone telling that information to me? It's like, which of those am I going to absorb more out of? Um, but the power of lecture to me a lot of the time is going to be your ability to pull in the wider scope and talk about meaning and talk about why this is exciting and cool and get people thinking about why this is really awesome and why this matters. And, you know, those telling stories, you know, those are things that written material is is not going to do as good of a job of right because written material can't convey passion enthusiasm experience personal story those are all of the things that can come across in lectures so uh it's very cool to hear that you had that experience when you started to change and experiment um, my dad's actually a teacher so i ask him for teaching advice pretty regularly and one of the pieces of teaching advice he gives that i really don't want to take um <laughs> is that uh, you're, you will be bad at it your first few years. Um, it takes a few years to get good at it. And so I want to know, is that true? <laughs> <laughs> and please tell me it's not, but I don't want you to give a biased answer. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I can definitely say that, uh, I'm becoming better. Um, was, was I bad in the beginning? I think the biggest challenge was that I had to completely revamp two courses in my first year that I started working 
as a new lecturer, so it was a lot of firsts at once. <clears throat> a lot of firsts um, at yeah at once. Some students said um, there was always one thing that came across with. So every year there's a review from the students, um, and there was always one point or yeah collection of points, and that's. Uh, the lecturer knows what he's saying. He has expertise, and yeah, that was always the highest score in my review. Um, what they don't really like about my style—I'll call it style—is I'm assuming they are second and third year students. So, in my opinion, I don't have to write a guide for anything anymore. Uh, anything. So, not all the things explained in the. Yeah, gritty details uh, because there's documentation. So I can write a basic guide for the beginning and then I'm like, okay, just like in yeah, real life, you're in your second or third year, you're going to have to do an internship that um, self-sufficiency, uh, you're going to have to grow it. So go to the documentation and try to implement it. After you've Googled a bit and you've tried it, show me what you've tried and then I can help you on a good path. Um, that was something which made me maybe a bad teacher. Maybe I'm still in that context a bad teacher uh, for some students. Well, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily enjoy the framing of good <laughs> and bad. Um, I, I, I like things to, to being on scales with different areas, right? Like you, and, and also we should remember that um, it's, it's very similar to user testing uh, where the feedback your users give you um, if, if students are users in this case is not necessarily going to be a one-to-one, -one, right? Like users will tell you some information and then you need to actually think and digest, okay, what does that data mean? Um, you know, like one, one thing I think, I, I want to relate that to is um, I'm very bad at letting people struggle, which is really important and necessary. So I've had to work with um, more junior developers before who were coming onto a new team. And my goal was to onboard them. And I had a bad habit of, they would ask me a question and I would give them the answer. And like, that sounds, what do you mean bad habit? You give them the answer. That's at least you're not being confusing. It's like, no, that's actually like really bad for people's learning is to just deliver the information to them and make it like information, um, cheat food, right? What they need to do is they need to find out for themselves and struggle with it. And I think that's something that it sounds like with your teaching style, you do a better job of is letting them figure it out. Now, of course there's a pendulum swing and a balance. And so. If, if you imagine us on different sides of that spectrum, right? Like what I need to do is grow and improve at um, providing students the opportunity to self-explore, to be self-sufficient and to work it out on their own and really chew on a problem so that they get it. Um, the inverse could be said potentially of figuring out how do we make the information more digestible or what I, I think one of the things um, we both probably struggle with or have experience with is uh, called the curse of knowledge. So once you know something really deeply, which is one of the pieces of feedback that you're getting, it's really hard to explain it simply. Um, that's not always the case if you're depending on what the subject is, but sometimes knowing 
enough about something makes it hard to remember what about it is complicated and difficult to wrap your head around. And so that's another thing that can potentially happen is, you know, so much about the subject. And I know this, I've had conversations with you where, you know, the information goes over my head and I don't know what we're talking about because, um, you are quite brilliant. And, um, yeah, so I would, I would say that is kind of my reading of the situation. I, I don't want to, uh, use the words good and bad, uh, because I know that you're a good teacher. Thank you for the kind words. Um, Maybe something small to add. I think it um, you, you can only use those words if uh, if the expe expectations of the person are basically written in stone. So at our university, um, do they expect me to just write guides, and should they become self sufficient? when they go to work or should we actually train them before they get there? Um, and that's also something not clear. So as you said, maybe those terms aren't entirely correct, but students do indicate that it's a um, big switch from other lecturers to me. Um, but yeah, at least they're honest and that's the most important based on feedback you can grow. So. Yeah, listening feedback is often very painful and difficult, um, but really important for sure. Understanding these things and how we can grow and improve. Like, I remember when I got to uh, sit down and, and do the lecture, um, a lot of the feedback made me go, oh, I don't understand certain things that I thought I understood. And I actually have a like lack of knowledge in certain areas and, or I use the wrong terminology for something or, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm like to, to kind of soul bear for a second. Like it was tough after that lecture. I literally just like went outside and just like sat for an hour <laughs> and questioned <laughs> my life choices. <laughs> it was just like, what am I doing? Um, those moments have become more and more frequent as I've put myself into uh, more and more demanding scenarios. But I also think that's just part of the human experience. You know, we're supposed to constantly question ourselves and, you know, experience self-doubt. And that is just, it, it doesn't make that easier, <laughs> but uh, it, it is definitely part of the process for sure. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't have a, a good way to transition to the next thing that I do want to talk to you about. So I'm just going to bring it up. Um, yes, good. <laughs> yeah, I would love to talk about um, what it's like to to be a researcher, actually, because we've talked about the teaching side of things, and we have gotten some insights there. And that's, I think, one of the more common grounds that you and I share. So I want to step into the unknown for a second and just get what is the experience of being a researcher for people who might be considering that path? Um, you know, how, do, how does that work yeah um maybe a little bit of background so in belgium the two kinds of universities um at the theoretical uh, yeah for the theoretical programs universities they um they do fundamental research and i'm in the more professional practical kind of um, university where they try to focus on business life so yeah, it's important to know the context since our research is more um, yeah, 
contribution to society might be the wrong word because that's also for the other research but we try to actually take that fundamental research and put it into practice with company we go to the companies ask for a use case and then ask okay can we try this experimental technology uh, protocol or whatever it is um, and can we do it for your use case and sometimes businesses are open for that and sometimes they are not but in general we can say that if you do research businesses have to be involved um as for the question what exactly is it what you're doing <laughs> um when i uh yeah went for job went for the job in the beginning uh the job description was uh that you every two maybe three years or maybe every year I have a different project and um, you you have to switch between different projects um, different contexts and that that sounded really nice it still sounds nice by the way i'm still happy with my job <laughs> um, but what i didn't expect is that it's such a broad and diverse job description that you are faced with tasks that you never thought you would do for example, I thought research, okay, I'm going to be able to, um, yeah, pinnacle might be the wrong word, but I might be able to use my expertise um, and study based on my expertise and do difficult difficulties uh, that I never expected. Um, but in real life, um, I'm also doing server management, data engineering, uh, data collection, service integrations, of course, and also the distributed computing and architectures, um, but even experimental BDD approaches and practices. So it's really broad. Um, of course, they were all very nice and uh, very success successful projects. Um, and it sometimes even resulted in writing open source software. So that's the best thing of them all. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe something more concrete, uh, what did I do? Some example projects. Um, there's a project, Diabetes and Sports. That's for type 1 uh, diabetes patients. And the goal of that um, re research is to let diabetes patients sport in a healthy, normal environment. Um, so that there are less health risks. We want to facil facilitate that with an AI algorithm, but in order to train that, we need data. So that's a data collection platform uh, with our custom OAuth provider um, and all the clients that integrate with it, um, all written in Elixir, by the way, except for the provider that's Keycloak. Um, and now we've got the data and the data scientists can do their magic um merlin's in action <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i think yeah it's it's a nicely organized project uh there's also a really huge company behind it i'm not sure if i'm allowed to say the name so um yeah no sorry. worries if there's ndas or things like that we don't need to yeah um but yeah it's a really successful project um, other than that, uh, first time right, it's a BDD research uh, project. And um, sorry, it, can we take a second to say uh, BDD? Yeah. You're talking about behavior. Yes. Uh, Be behavior driven development or design? I can't remember. Uh, development, behavior driven development. 
Could you really quick explain what that is, just in case, uh, so that you know we can all be on the same page here? I'm actually pretty loosely familiar. I have like some understanding, but I haven't written BDD, so I could also use a, a catch up real quick. Yeah. So BDD is in, um, yeah, once again, just in higher lines, I guess, in the higher definitions. <laughs> It's a way of approaching your uh, software development cycle where you uh, define your software based on the behavior it does. Um, And the nice thing, in my opinion at least, is that also business developers can contribute to uh, the testing process, which the actual actual technical people is really wrong wording. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We have people who focus on product and people who focus on the implementation, if that's what you mean. Yes, thank you. That's a good way of saying it. Um, (laughs) So those uh, feature files uh, written in a give when then steps um, are then parsed. Uh, It's called Gherkin, that's language. And then actually converted to the testing framework so that the tests can be executed. So in my opinion, it's a wonderful collaboration between product owner, your business developer, and uh, the the software developer. Um, And it eliminates a lot, really so many mistakes. And it forces also the product owner to think more concretely about his product. What should he do? Uh, What would happen? Um, The downside is, once again, in my opinion, uh, I don't represent the whole project. I was on it for mm-hmm. a small part. Um, is, for example, um, front-end developers basically test their front-end with it, and they're testing it more um, with the testing than actually doing the BDD process. So the BDD is more of a process than just a tool to test the software or a framework to test the software. But we also noticed the other way around. If you don't have the tool, then the whole process becomes harder uh, because the collaboration is um, harder. So uh, we noticed that actually for Elixir, so there was a um, yeah, cucumber. It, it was wide red, um, but it was missing some features or not actively maintained. I don't know the reason exactly anymore. And uh, we were of the opinion that there's a wonderful Cucumber uh, monorepo, which they are now splitting up. And there are all the official integrations. If you want to make BDD more accessible to people and make an impact on business life, then yeah, maybe we should write an official parser of the Gherkin language. And that was then my assignment. So it was integrated in a monorepo. Um, and it converts this given when then feature file uh, to an AST. And that AST you can use um, to run on the testing framework, which still needs to be written, of course. So. Very cool. Very cool. So so just to kind of say it in my own words to make sure that I'm um, understanding. Um, BDD, we're essentially creating these high-level... Um, I think it's actually English phrases, if I have read it up correctly, right? Where you're like, under this situation, it should do this. Um, And that allows your um, non-technical or product-focused people to come in and they can actually define these behaviors. Uh, I think they 
they're sometimes referred to as contracts, or that might be a different terminology. Again, I'm not super familiar. But anyway, they define these behaviors. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's often called scenario. In this scenario, you have this given random situation. But I haven't heard of contracts, but there are some dialects. That might be different. So it might be possible that in the dialect, it's parsed to the same. Sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it might be might be different. I should read up on BDD before I talk too much about it. But um, yeah, you essentially have this English language way of saying, here's how we expect the app to behave. That pushes your product team closer to the technical, where they really, like you're saying, they have to define how do you want this to work, which I think is like the fundamental struggle between technical implementation and product it's really hard to say how you want an app to behave you can have an idea in your head but until you actually see it work and watch the flow and you know all of that it can be very hard to really anticipate the behavior um and there there are design you you can have that conversation um, without this specific technology and tool of writing bdd style tests but that makes it harder to actually bring into the technical because you can all agree on that. But then, you know, you hit the metal and suddenly things change, right? And we implement things in a slightly different way. This is where terminology can get totally separate as well. When your technical terms are different than your product terms, you know, you know, there's something going on there that uh, gets very confusing very fast. Um, and yeah, okay. Well, that's that's cool. <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. Is there um is there maybe a project or something I could link to related to? Um, uh, you don't need to find it now. Just I want to know if it exists, and I can put it in the show notes. Um, there's the of course yeah the GitHub repository of Cucumber. Um, I'll send you the link later on, but it's nothing more than basic Elixir um, library. Awesome on GitHub. Cool. Well. Yeah, we can yeah, put for link people there. who are um, interested in BDD and working on that kind of stuff in Elixir, I'll I'll share those resources as kind of a getting started. It's something that I would like to learn more about, so that'd be super interesting for me as well. Um, we're running towards uh, the end of our time, so I did want to ask: uh, Is there anything that you would like to uh, shout out to, promote, pitch, maybe recommendations, a favorite book? Um, totally open floor. Uh, what do you want to leave our, our Elixir newbies out there with? Um, I didn't have anything specific in mind, but I do think that I have to give two uh, very big thank yous. Uh, and one is, of course, to the company, because it allows me to use Elixir. Um, it's not every day that the company just says, hey, yeah, try some Elixir and keep doing it for a few years. So uh, that's the first one. And the second one is also to you, Brooklyn. Thank you for the guest lecture. And that's not all just in my name, but a lot of students uh, have given feedback and they all liked it. It was a wonderful lecture. You did a wonderful job. Um, and we we're very happy with it. Thank, Thank you, you, buddy. <laughs> Thank you. That, that warms my heart. It was such a cool experience. Um, one of the coolest moments in my life to get to do that. And... Um, thank you for, for giving me the opportunity. It was very cool. Some students, some very kind students did reach out afterwards and um, shared some kind words. So you have an awesome classroom. Uh, and if I were ever to go to university, uh, UCLL in your class is the one that I would take. 
And um, that uh, that's going to be it for this episode of the Elixir Newbie podcast today. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. And I hope all you Elixir Newbies out there enjoyed this episode and learned a lot. If you want to chat, you can always send me a message. I'm at Brooklyn J. Myers on Twitter. I hope you all have an excellent rest of your week. And I will catch you on the next episode.